0: I hope you'll stay in for Samuel and uh, my title this morning for a few thoughts that I want to draw your attention to as we celebrate another great event in the life of a church and so I've titled my thoughts this morning as a mother's prayer a father's leadership and God's response this is an interesting chapter that Steve just read it's the narrative of the Bible. These are real events that happen and they're there for us. But as a way to kind of set them up for us, I want to ask us some questions as we get ready to rejoice and address Daniel and Amanda. I want you to think about this question as you've just heard this account read for you and no doubt your mind can go to these types of situations, but how do you handle crisis in your life? How do you handle it when things don't go the way you want them to? to go. What do you do when it seems that the one thing you want most huh, it seems like the world or family or god doesn't seem to give it to you. When these things happen in your life, when these things happen in my life, are you driven to prayer like Hannah was? Or are you prone to just give up? Do you get angry? with God or with your life or with circumstances? When things don't go your way, are you easily defeated or do you get stubborn? Do you kind of just get entrenched and resolved and say, listen, I'm going to figure out a way to get this or to handle this or to deal with this. But let me add another wrinkle based on the Word of God that we heard read. Imagine for a minute putting yourself in Hannah's place that the one thing you want most in life and yet you can't have... Your best friend does. What do you do now? Or worse, that one thing that you want more than anything, not only do you not have it, but then it seems like your enemies get to have what you don't have. Now what do you do? Now I might seem a little odd. I do want to try and segue this together as we have joined with Daniel and Amanda and the McKelvey family as they are coming before God today on this Sunday in August And really, they're offering up themselves. They want to offer up themselves publicly before us and before God to say, we want to be godly parents to Josiah. They and we, as a church family, are going to, in kind of a liturgical, ceremonial way, kind of do what Hannah and Elkanah did, give Josiah back to God. And really... What Daniel and Amanda are here today with their family and friends is to come publicly before us and make some vows. And I never never stop being amazed at the timing of God because last week we had a young couple come before us as a church and make marriage vows. And we got to be witnesses of that. And today Daniel and Amanda come and they're going to make vows before God and us to raise Josiah, their third gift from God, to know and follow Christ. Now before you might think, well, ones, I showed up here on the worst Sunday ever. As this is all about parenting and I came to church to just hear a regular sermon. Let me say this very emphatically this morning. I believe that the preaching of God's word is the most important thing we can do here on a Sunday morning. I really do. I love to sing. I hope that was evident. I love to get together with all of God's people. I love to see your faces. I love to meet new people. I love to see what God is doing in everybody's life. And even as we walk through the ups and downs of life and the challenges, but make no mistake, without the preaching of the Word of God, we don't have anything. And so whether it's marriage or parenting, everybody here, no matter your marital status, no matter where you're at in life, no matter what your socioeconomic standard is, everybody can learn something. Paul said in Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. And here's why. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love this. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Now here's why. Bless those who persecute you, bless them, and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, and do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So, whether we're dealing with marriage, or whether we're dealing with parenting, or sometimes we deal with money, sometimes we deal with just the tragedies of life, everybody here can learn something. Everything is for you in the Word of God. And so when we come to Jesus, and we come to his word, we can see Jesus and learn more of God's plan. And with that in mind, that's why I had Steve read 1 Samuel chapter 1. And my first point for you this morning, and for Daniel and Amanda in particular, actually is a point in the form of a question. And really, I started with this. When life doesn't go your way, what do you do? Now, I've known Daniel and Amanda for quite some time, and really I've known them since uh, Josiah was born and watched them deal with parenting with both Micah and Philip, and I can tell you that they've already shared with me, even though they, these three boys just encompass them and they love them, and that life does not always go as they planned it, especially when you're parents. It doesn't matter how well you try to plan it, it doesn't always go the way you want it to. And that is a question for all of us, because every one of you here, if I had the time today to talk to you personally and get your story, would say to me, life has not always gone the way I wanted it to go. But what do you do when life does that? You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we are introduced to the life of Hannah. And for this dear woman, her life never went as she intended us. And sometimes it's very hard for us in our 21st century Western culture to feel the struggle and to feel the weight of this burden. You see, the text tells us where this family was from. They tell us about this man, Elkanah. And very quickly it tells us he had two wives. Now before you all freak out or wonder what this is, I don't want you to be uh, fooled by your preconceived ideas about life in the ancient Near East, especially about polygamy. Because contrary to maybe what you think about the Bible, especially the Old Testament, monogamy, not polygamy, was generally practiced. In fact, if you actually study the Bible, polygamy was not only frowned upon, but discouraged and actually condemned. And even though this old culture that might not have frowned on polygamy, you will never find it in the Bible where it is endorsed, or given a positive example of. In fact, you'll always see polygamy adds pressure, heartache, and pain. It was never God's created order or designed. And yet the culture had made up reasons to try and justify it. Just like our culture tries to to redefine marriage, redefine the family, and tell us how we can do things. And so often it was said that the reason to have more than one wife, outside of the obvious uh, advantages that men felt they had, was because there was an imbalance of the number of males and females, which I think is a pretty shallow excuse to do this. The need to produce a large number of children to work herds or fields the desire to increase the prestige and wealth of a household, which is still very common today in countries in the 21st century that practice polygamy. And tragically, polygamy was common amongst these nomadic groups and in rural farming communities. But that's really the backdrop of this. This is not what you're meant to get looking at. What you are meant to see is that Hannah has a burden. She's barren. And in her world and in her day... Bearing children was a sign of God's greatest blessing. Psalm 127 verse 3 talks about this blessing of God. And the inability to bear children was often viewed, in fact, as it was almost universally seen as a sign of God's punishment. So Hannah just didn't have the burden of saying, I can't have children. She bore the extra stigma that everyone around her would have said, she did something wrong. She's getting God's judgment upon her. And it's interesting because this emotional divide in this family is shown even by their names. I don't know if you know this, but Hannah, whose name means gracious, and Penina, her name means prolific. Aptly named for these two women, as you hear one, she's barren, barren and she's, she's childless, but her name is graciousness. Penina could have children, it seems, very easily, and her name itself meant prolific, and he'll and kind of try, tries to fix things on his own, I might add, similar to Sarah and countless others. Likely, he loved Hannah. That was the wife of his of, of the love of his life, but she didn't have children, so he brings Penina into the picture, and she has children, and only does it solve one problem to make a whole bunch of others. You see, when you try to obey God while fixing the problems that you don't think God will or worse, God won't fix them according to your plans. It never works out for you. So what happens when life doesn't go your way? So in 1 Samuel, we have a family, and at least Hannah and Elkanah loved God. They wanted something desperately from God, and they felt it was a good thing to want. And yet, notice this. They never stopped worshiping God, even in the face of this setback and adversity. Year after year, the chapter tells us, they went up to the temple now, if you understand Judaism, they were called, the males were called to go up to Israel at least three times a year. And so at least three times Elkanah would make this journey up to the temple, and he would do that. And even though there was all this pain and all this desperation, and life just wasn't turning out the way it was supposed to, this couple, this family, doesn't stop worshiping God. And so again, I reiterate the question how do you react when things don't go your way? And for Daniel and Amanda, things are not always going to go your way. Not in marriage, not in family, especially not in parenting. You see, Hannah's pain and burden and embarrassment was deep. In fact, William Blakey adds, the trial which Hannah had to bear was particularly heavy because to a Hebrew woman to have no child was not only a disappointment, but it seemed to make out one as dishonored by God, as unworthy of any part or lot in what made the nation of Israel great. And notice the reality as well as all this mixed with scorn. Then there was Penina. She was really Job's comforter, wasn't she? She would come along and she would scorn him. Look at verse 6 and 7 of First Samuel 1. And her rival. I love the fact that it says rival. It doesn't say that they were sisters or anything like that. It says her rival used to provoke her grievously. And here was her motive. To irritate her. To mock her. Because the Lord had chosen to close her womb. And notice therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Try and imagine the scene. Let me just play one out for you. Imagine they're getting ready to make the pilgrimage and, and Elkanah is getting everything loaded up and the servants are working and, and now Penina getting everyone and, and now you can hear it, right? Now do all the children have their food? Penina probably says, dear me, there are so many of you. It's hard to keep track of so many of my children. And Then maybe one of the kids say, Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? Say that again. Miss Hannah, oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Maybe one of the other kids, doesn't she want children? And Penina would say, oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too? Maybe one of the other kids says, "Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids?" "Oh, certainly he does," Panina would say. "But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. she just can't have kids. Can you feel the tension? Can you feel it?" Again, one commentator says, year after year it went on, baiting Hannah, irritating her, winding her up until the sobs broke out, goading her to complain against God. Does that not sound familiar to a book named Job? Where after all of this setback, even Job's wife goes to him and says, Why don't you just curse God and die? How would you like to have that for a wife? Lucas, I'm hoping that won't happen with you and Elvira. All right? But be honest. Before I get to all the warm and fuzzies of this, I just want you to be honest. How would you react? What would you do in this situation? How would humanity, me and you, react to hardships and tragedy and setbacks and failures from the largest of things to the events that seem small, so small? It's been my experience in life, both with myself and with my wife and I and our family, with my friends and my extended family, and my church. I've seen this type of reaction happen to tragedy or setbacks or failures or hindrances. We either run to God or from Him. There doesn't seem to be a third option. We either try to be God or we submit to God. And we do all kinds of things in this way. Some of us will get proud and try and justify our actions. Some of us get angry. Some of us get bitter. Some of us turn to substances. Some of us will play the blame game. Some of us rehearse our past and and we just embrace our victimology and let that just enslave us. Some of us make excuses. Sometimes we turn to other people to be God in our life, to other things or other places. We often hide or sleep. Maybe we overeat or even take medication. Some of us work out or pig out. Some of us bury our heads in our hearts and we try to drown out the sorrow or the pain. But what do you do when God doesn't seem to give you what you want? And for me as a pastor elder, for the other elders of this church, what do we do? You see, my desire is to have a perfect church. And yet, the moment I have that desire, I know that's impossible. I want the church to grow. I want the church to have lots of money in it. I want us to be able to build buildings and do all kinds of things. I want all of St. John's to know who we are and to like us and everything to go hunky-dory. And I got a list of things that I ask God to do for us. And much of it, I, I don't get. How about you? With your kids, your grandkids, a spouse, a, a child, a job, a, a better marriage, bills paid, retirement plan, a car, a house, friends, acceptance, a raise, a promotion. What is it that your heart longs for and why? And then how do you react to its absence? See, Hannah is in pain, Hannah has doubts. Hannah is struggling and fights with anxiety. I love the fact that it's right there in the passage that she struggled with anxiety. It's what she says to Eli, the high priest. But watch this. Hannah doesn't try harder. She believes better. Notice that when she deals with this. Watch how it gets worse because my second point for us this morning is not only what do you do when things don't go your way? What do you do when your family and religion misunderstand you? It's bad enough if life doesn't seem to go your way. Now what do you do if it seems like family and even religion turns against you? Notice in our passage in 1 Samuel, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And I love this. Am I not more to you than ten sons? All right, now, Daniel, let's talk about this. I believe that this passage is one of God's greatest examples of what not to say to your wife. All right? I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Christian comedian Tim Hawkins, but Tim Hawkins has this song that he's written These Are the Things You Don't Say to Your Wife. And this would rank as one of them. Okay? She's in pain. And I, again, Daniel and men of this church, I'm not knocking Elkanah's tenderness. I believe he loved his wife. I believe he wants to be uh, supportive to Hannah. And I applaud his attentiveness and his softness. I'm, I'm in awe of his awareness of Aunt Hannah's pain and his attempt to let her know that he loves her and accepts her. That's all good. And that's something as men we need to see and learn from. There's just one fatal flaw. And I want you to notice with me. What's wrong with Elkanah's statement? Basically, he says to his wife... Am I not more to you than ten sons? But notice he doesn't say, You are worth more to me than ten sons. He actually made it about him. Look, he says to Hannah, Don't worship motherhood. Worship marriage. Worship me. Be content with me. Hannah, I'll solve your issues. I'll satisfy your longings. I'll meet your needs. Instead of pointing Hannah to God, he points to himself. And men, that's dangerous for all of us. Elkanah should have said, Hannah, my wife and my love, your value is found in God and you are his daughter. And so Hannah is burdened. She's got the cultural stigma. She's got religious tradition. She's got relational scorn and she's got marriage misunderstanding. It's a great way to start a baby dedication sermon, isn't it? How would you react? Where would you turn? Again, so many would run or fight or get jaded or bitter. But instead, in Lotus, in verses 9 to 11, Hannah turns to God. She doesn't run from him. She runs to him. Her problems drove her to God. And for Daniel and Amanda and for everybody here this morning, whatever you face, whether it's parenting issues and challenges, marriage issues and challenges, whether it's challenges at work or at home or in the family, with finances, with with physical pain or whatever it is, does it drive you to God? And she goes to the presence of Yahweh in fervent supplication. And don't pray down her grief. I love this. It talks about her despair and her anxiety. But notice, she doesn't blame God. She doesn't go to God and say, you know what, you owe me. Notice, at the end of verse 5 and 6, you hear this little phrase that often we pass over because the Lord had closed her womb. If there's one thing I want Daniel and Amanda to take away from this today, if there's one thing I want us as a church to take away from this is The unmitigated sovereignty of God in the life of ourselves and our children and those around us. She prays. She prays. And look at verse 10. Look at what it says. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. There are, there are these emotions that Hannah says, and the Bible wants us to know. And, and if Samuel is the one writing this, can you imagine what it's like for this man now to be writing about the pain and emotions of his mother? Imagine how those discussions went as maybe she tells him how he came to be and what his life was like. And she talks about her anxiousness and her bitterness and her, and her heaviness of soul, and yet she goes to God in total submission. And then, of course, in verses 12 to 13, we see this wonderful high priest named Eli that was just as naive and misunderstanding of this as Elkanah was. Because he sees this woman in the temple and her mouth is moving, but no words are coming out. And she's in despair and likely sees tears running down her cheeks. And what does he do? He assumes she's drunk. And I love this. She addresses Yahweh as Host as cosmic ruler, as sovereign of every and all power, and assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. Oh, listen, Daniel and Amanda, no matter what happens to you as you raise these boys... No matter what good and what trials come, and there's times that you're going to be desperate in prayer, I want you to believe like Hannah that doesn't matter that you guys may be one of two people in this province, in this country, in this hemisphere, in this world. You are never too small that you can't pray and be heard by God as you pray for your boys, and especially for Josiah. And for every one of you here today, God knows you, and He loves you, and He listens to your prayer. I love this. Probably the most amazing thing for me about this is she doesn't get mad at, at Eli. She doesn't justify herself or argue back and forth. She just explains to him what's going on, and she worshiped God and God alone. And she says, if you will just give me this child, then I promise you that this child will belong to you. And I actually think that's the outstanding mark of Hannah's prayer. Notice as she prays the liberty that floods over her. Look at verse 13. She is in such intense anguish speaking in her heart. And she says, no, sir, I'm a woman with a heavy spirit. And I have not drunk wine or strong drink. Rather, I've been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. And as soon as that happens, there's freedom. There's freedom when she pours her burden out unto the Lord. and Because now she, she gets up and she has peace and she eats and I love this. David cried out in Psalm 142, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Friends, that's what makes Hebrews 4.12 for those of us today in the New Testament life. That's why you need to embrace this, that we have a high priest that was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. So we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in our time of need, no matter what you are struggling with. You see, Hannah submits herself to God's will. She was reminded of who God is. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you in my life, I've had many things happen where I wondered why in my marriage, in parenting, and now even being a granddad. And I don't know about you, but I've often looked around and have you ever wondered sometimes why it seems that you're working really hard to to do what's right and it seems that the harder you try to do what's right, the harder it gets. And then you look around you and it seems that people that don't even try at all seem life is easy to them. And you know what? The psalmist in Psalm 73 said this. He said, but when I thought how to understand this and it seemed to me too wearisome a task, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell all your works. And so for Daniel and Amanda, as you encounter again another phase of parenting, when it seems like you're working really, really hard to do what's right and sometimes it doesn't seem to be working out, And it sometimes seems that maybe you misunderstand each other or family misunderstand you or even the church misunderstands you and it's easy for us all to make assumptions about each other and and we are all armchair quarterbacks. We're the greatest at that, you know. It's always easy to dole out advice. It's very hard to follow it and live it out. And it's also hard to admit that parenting is the long game. It's never the short game. But then, number three, as we come to the end of this, when God responds to you, what do you do? So I've asked you three questions. What do you do when life doesn't go your way? What do you do when it even seems like family and and religion and everything misinterpret you or or, or misunderstand you? But then what do you do when those examples of when God does respond? Because in verse 19 it says, "...they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife." And the Lord remembered her. Now Hannah gets what she's asked for to be a mom. She's given the one thing that she wanted most a child, a son. But I want you to notice what's not in the passage. Hannah does not do the Lotto 649 happy dance. All right. Yes, she doesn't. you don't see that in the passage. You don't see her going, yes, finally I figured out the secret. Finally, on, I've rubbed the lamp enough. I know how to make God the genie that pops out of the lamp for me. She doesn't go over to Penina and gloat. She doesn't say, oh, well, if God allowed me to be pregnant and have a child, surely he doesn't expect me to give the child away. I just said that in the heat of my anxiety. No, you see, she went from actually wanting a child most to wanting the glory of God most. And then instead of making an idol out of motherhood, she put it in the right perspective and saw it as a stewardship. But the God of her life was going to be God. She's thankful and obedient according to our chapter. She has perspective and it's an eternal one. They can love now her and her husband Samuel and know he's doesn't, that she doesn't own him And so she can't control him, and thus she has no rights over him. Ultimately, she's learned that God, he belongs to God the way Hannah belongs to God. And so men and husbands, now Elkanah redeems himself. Because notice in verse 21 and verse 23, when Hannah says, Look, I've made a covenant, and let me wean the child. And when I've weaned him, I'll go up, and Elkanah just supports her. And I love it because he says, may it be established by the word of the Lord. He supports his wife in her spiritual understanding. He comes alongside her and he, and he affirms her and he says, yes, if this is the way God has worked in your life, then I want to join you in that. He learned quickly and became a support and a leader quickly. And so, as our story goes, after Hannah weans Samuel, she follows through. In other words, she obeys God no matter what. And thus ends the story. So what can we learn? What can I give to this family, this couple, and to us as a church? Here's some things as we bring our few thoughts to a close. Number one is this. Listen to me. God is absolutely sovereign over every situation in our lives. And yet, it's okay to have a human reaction to the Lord. I want you to realize that following God doesn't mean you become a robot. Following God doesn't mean you don't have emotions. Following God doesn't mean that you can't ask why. Following God doesn't mean you don't struggle. I want you to see the big picture of what God is doing here in Hannah's life. She had doubts. She had anxiety. She bore scorn, all meant to accomplish something so much bigger than even Hannah could have possibly imagined. And yet, Hannah didn't pretend that she didn't hurt she didn't walk around singing "It's a Small World After All" as if life circumstances. And for Daniel and Amanda, as you raise these boys, and especially Josiah, and you have all the happy memories of all the things you've already experienced—those those first steps, and the first words, and the first time he crawls up into his big boy bed, and all the things that he does—and when he goes to kindergarten, but there will be hurts and situations where you'll just scratch your head, you'll cry out, you'll hold each other, and you'll wonder, "Why is this happening?" God is sovereign and sees things way bigger than you and I do. And that's true of all of us. Secondly, there's a great freedom in prayer and in sharing with others when we embrace our weakness in God's power. All oh, that you guys will practice this as a couple and as a family. That you will be a man and a woman and a married couple and a family that know the freedom of prayer and sharing life with others and embracing your weakness in God's power. For every one of you here this morning, you need to know this. It should be a blessing and a challenge to you as this God of the universe hears us when we pray. Further, he even hears your tears. This is what Paul meant in Romans when he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know, we don't do not know what to pray, for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep, too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't know about you, but I have been both an individual, a husband, a dad, where things have happened in my life and I've gone to the Lord in prayer and all I can do is go, Oh God. I, I don't even know how to form. My needs are my desires. Now, I want to make sure that nobody walks away and confused this. The story of Hannah should not be read as a promise that God always removes barrenness or any other physical problem or emotional thing you might happen. Its chief purpose is to show how God overruled events. Okay? Think of Romans 8.28. If Hannah had had a son at an earlier date, if life had been simple for her, would she not have placed Samuel in the temple of Shiloh to grow up there and be a man of God who would then be in the public gaze ready for leadership? And you see, if you step back and you realize the whole Bible story from Judges to then Ruth to then 1st Samuel, Samuel is the one who God would use to anoint King David from whom we would get Jesus the Messiah who would then pay for our sins that makes the gospel possible. So Hannah walks this journey, and from her perspective, it's hard, it's, it's wearisome, it's burdensome, and she cries and she has the emotions of it, but God knows the beginning from the end. And boy, do you have to cling to that as parents. Because whether it's physical things or emotional things or behavioral things, it's always important not to take a Polaroid of your family or your parenting and say, this defines us. Be in it for the long game. I've had times, and I've shared this with you guys. Debbie and I have you talked to us as having raised children and now in the second phase of grandparenting, I was asking Bill about that and what it's like to be a granddad before the service and our son is moving back here so I, I get to have my grandson in my arms and I get to thinking about what it's like because this is like act two, parenting act two and yet I am thrilled about the idea that I can be with him, play with him, Wind him up, buy him stuff, and then go, Here, Dad, take him home. (laughs) One of the great, I think, revenges of grandparenting. But I can tell you, there were points in my life where people would look at us and where Debbie and I thought we had her, to use a Newfoundland expression, we thought we had her scald. Life was easy. Parenting was just clicking. The boys got along. Abby was cute. They all sat dressed the same at at the center of the church. Everybody would come to us and tell us what great parents we were. And then the boys became teenagers. And then it was like going on a five year water skiing journey. And then life just happens. And you realize that wait a second, I'm in this for the long game, I'm not in it for the temporary. And I want you to realize that whether you're single or you're young or you're married or you're not, whether you're grandparents, Christians in general, what is God telling you right now to turn over to Him in prayer and in heart? Because that's what you need to do. You see, the, the writer of Job said, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried, I shall come out as gold. This is what I want us to remember. And then finally, always remember who is the main character of is in our lives in good times and in bad. When Hannah and Elkanah see God respond to their prayers, they don't think more highly of themselves. They believe, worship, and think more of God. That's the most important thing because they trusted in God and not themselves. And that's important for all of us to do. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you should never get weary of hearing it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall make straight your paths. And that's where we usually end, but it keeps going. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. And here's why. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So if you're here this morning as Christians, those of you that say, "I, I am a believer in Christ, I follow Him, I'm trusting Him, then how does this passage apply to you? Here it is. What has God been speaking to you or to your heart about? that you just have to cast your burdens on the Lord and trust Him. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're curious about Christ or you don't know Him or you've been around this kind of religious stuff but you don't know what it's all about, maybe you have felt your heart tinge a little bit. Jesus is calling you. Maybe He's pricking your heart. I want you to know that God has a plan for you. He always has had a plan and it will come to pass. And you've heard it in our liturgy, and Brother Jeff prayed about this. We are sinners, and we're born this way. The one thing I know about Micah, Philip, and Josiah is Daniel and Amanda never taught them how to be selfish. They never taught them the word no. They never taught them how to fight as brothers. They never taught them how to be self-centered. That's just in us. We, We don't do bad things and thus become sinners. We are sinners, thus we do bad things. The one thing that's constant in my parenting is I never, ever taught my kids how to do bad things, but I have busted my rear end off to try and teach them how to be good people. And it doesn't come easy because we're all sinners. We're born that way. That's our deepest need, and Jesus is the answer to that need, and he's the only answer. God, in his mercy and grace, sent Jesus to die innocently for us, folks. He paid the penalty of sin, yours and mine. And when we trust in Him, that means we believe in Him and we confess to Him and we repent. And that means we call sin what God calls it. And we turn to God. Then we are truly saved. And God gives us a new heart and a new way of thinking and a new way of living. And like Hannah, we can be free free to be open and honest. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to worry if your good outweighs your bad. You don't have to put on an act or a front. You can go in prayer with your deepest needs and your deepest questions and your deepest doubts and your deepest issues. And we can and will trust in God more than ourselves. And if you sense that God's calling you today to that, then I implore you to come and talk to me afterwards or talk to a friend here and respond to God. And finally, Amanda, and as Daniel comes out, I just want to give you these little bullet points, and for everybody here, see being parents as totally of God and not of yourself. See being a parent not totally of God and not of yourself. See being parents as a stewardship, not ownership. God is the creator, savior of your children. Recognize the difference between success and failure and faithfulness. Because I have seen parents who, from our perspective, do everything wrong, and their kids just turn out perfect. And I've seen parents who, from our perspective, do everything right, and the kids don't turn out the way we'd like them to. There's no secret in this. You've got to go to the Lord with this, because what God calls you to, as Daniel and Amanda and for us, is to faithfulness, not success. Next, accept and obey that parenting as Christians is a community calling, and that's where every one of you come into play. This couple will not raise these boys without us. And we're not really being the church if we don't do this together. And then finally, and most importantly, only God can save your children. You are called to be witnesses. Hence why Jeff prayed in his prayer. I love what he prayed, that that our kids would see us be excited about the gospel. We are called to be witnesses